Galatians, Galatians, again, some of this will be review, but it's milky, that's what the term means. The same way that we um, use the term for our Milky Way, the Milky Way is what? What is the category you would put the Milky Way in? A galaxy. A galaxy is the same word here, like Galatians, Galakas. Uh, it is a region, it is not a single space. Uh, Acts 18, verse 23, for instance, it says he departed and went over the region of Galilee. It is the central region of Turkey. Enormously big. Turkey is enormously big, and right in the middle, that central region, there's a, in the middle, sort of landlocked, is the area of Galatia. We do know that Paul visited them on two occasions. He planted the church, and if you will, he planted and he watered. Uh, in Acts 16:6, 6, he went to Phrygia in the region. Notice again of Galatia. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now I have to bring this up. Paul has just picked up Timothy, and he is, his, in essence, his apprentice, his young squire. And we read that he tries to go two different places, but the Holy Spirit stops him. What we read is that that took place while he was in Galatia. So here's the interesting part of that. Uh, who has their Bible handy? Daniel, would you read... Galatians 4, 13 through 15, for a moment, please. Four thirteen. Yes, sir, 4, 13 through 15. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. But then was the sorry, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Okay. The reason I say that is the book of Acts tells us God's perspective on it. And that was that the Holy Spirit stopped Paul. Paul wanted to go into what we would know today as Istanbul. And the Holy Spirit stopped him, restricted him. We also know that he wanted to go, that was due north. Due west would have been uh, the area of Ephesus. And he wanted to go there. And again, the Holy Spirit stopped him. Now, how did the Holy Spirit stop him? Well, the book of Acts doesn't tell us. But the book of Galatians gives us great insight. What Paul tells us is when he was there, he was struck with some terrible sickness. And whatever the sickness, infirmity, by the way, is different than just weakness. And the reason I say that is... When we speak about breaking a leg or uh, something happened and your eyes really hurt or having terrible headaches, per se, or what I mean, something that's more like inflicted, I might say, we would use words like a, that, that tend to refer to a lack of strength, asthenico, for instance. However, on the other side of that, when we are sick, physically sick, then we use a word like the word that Paul uses for infirmity here. Now, the reason I say that is is that his eyes were a symptom of his illness. They were not the cause of his illness. He goes, you know that I was really, really sick when I came to you. And when I was really, really sick when I came to you, you guys welcomed me as if I were an angel of God himself. And you guys would have even plucked out your own eyes for me. Which tells me a little bit about where he was. 
that they were like, man, if that would help you, Paul, I'll give you my eyeballs. Now, the reason I say that is put two and two together for a second. Paul is trying to go to different places and the Holy Spirit is stopping him and he has a terrible infirmity. Who teaches that kind of doctrine? There is a whole doctrine that goes out there that says, if you are sick, you have a lack of faith. God would never send that kind of thing upon you. Although clearly in scripture, we see God clearly send it often, to be honest, to bring repentance or to bring revelation to people. And the reason I say that is here, Paul would actually say, though, that when in the second Corinthian letter, if you remember, that he had received some kind of great revelation. And of course, it'd be easy if we could kind of pin it down to the time when Paul actually was stoned and left for dead on his first trip, because it would be actually chronologically about that same time. And he says that he had a vision of, of paradise. Uh, he said, it is, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the spirit, in being aware, whether it was literal or whether it was just spiritual, I really don't know. It doesn't really matter. But, and then, but he's like, there was this guy, and he had this amazing vision, and he goes, but for the, because I had all these amazing visions, God inflicted me. And I think that's an interesting thing. So, I mean, for, for what it's worth, and I, I wonder what it would be like if we had a vision for a moment of paradise, how that would affect the rest of our lives. How that would affect our ministry. How that would affect the way that we look at each other. How that would affect the way that we look at church or the way that we look at the lost. When it's like, wow, this is eternity. This is the reality that I'm actually now banking on. So anyways, with all of that said, I just think it's an important fact, though. There's a couple things that Galatians teaches us we don't get in the book of Acts. One is what the Holy Spirit used to stop. Now, interesting, Paul would actually still say, though, that the thing that God used, that God sent, was a messenger from Satan. Messenger, by the way, is the word angelos. It was an angel from Satan. Did God send a demon? Hard to say that way, but a message, anything can come as a message. Strangely enough, the message came through an illness. And the illness that came, ultimately, was to say, no, you're not going to Istanbul. <laughs> or, no, you're not going to Ephesus. Not now. And God can do it whatever he wants. Now, I don't know if you know this, we were going to leave over a week before we did to come here. And right before we left for England, that was when that unpronounceable volcano in Iceland and I was like, that cloud thing. That cloud thing, yeah. I was and it, in Turkey. Oh, really? You were in Turkey. So, yeah, it grounded, it grounded every plane, at least everyone that was coming here, you know. Do you know the name of it? Cause you, I don't. Okay. Yeah. I'm just looking at you because, yeah, anyways. <laughs> because you happen to be to my left, Anna, that's why. <laughs> all right. Anyways, uh, with all of that said, so in this first mission trip, he came there, he was in really bad shape. That was clear and evident. Second trip around, after it says in, uh, in a second mission, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening the disciples. The first time through, he preached the gospel, shared the word, planted a church. Second time he came in and he followed up, strengthened and discipled these people, these disciples. So that much we know in regards to this. So this was a church Paul has been to at least twice. He planted the church and he's followed up with it. You would expect a church like this to be really solid in the area of salvation. Since that's the most that's the greatest issue of foundation uh, we have here, he clearly uh, mentions them again in First Corinthians, Second Timothy, and First Peter. Peter mentions them. It's one of the places he sends his letter to. Uh, for what it's worth, we do know. And again, we talked a little bit about this about the Paul's opponents last week. Uh, you don't even see them rise up until Gentiles get saved. Uh, and it's important to note, by the way, Paul was not the guy that initially brought the topic of the salvation of Gentiles 
into the church in Jerusalem. That was actually Peter. Because Peter was actually in Yopha, which is just south of Tel Aviv today, six miles south. And he got a vision, if you remember, sort of a beast and bug buffet picnic, where God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter, of course, thinks he's going to pass the test by saying, no, Lord. Let me just say, you really can't put those two words together. One of them has to be a lie. And, uh, and with that, ultimately, don't call common what I have made clean. And ultimately, he winds up at the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And when he winds up at his house, as he's preaching the gospel to these. And by the way, Cornelius gets a, a similar vision in that sense, not the bug and beast buffet, but one to say, go and get this Peter guy. And so when Peter's coming, it's like this guy's invited his family and his friends and he's a centurion. So that means there's a hundred soldiers under him that are, I mean, so Peter walks into this guy's house, which by the way, was traditionally illegal for a, a Jew to walk into a Gentile's house. Because when you came into their house, you became part of their family. I actually really like that part. Uh, just the same. And Peter walks in anyways. He's got six Jewish guys with him. So he's not going to do this alone. And when he walks in there, he starts to share the gospel with a whole lot of people, probably more than he probably imagined he was going to initially share with. And he hasn't even finished his message and the Holy Spirit jumps him and they start speaking in tongues. The second of three times in the book of Acts, the people are speaking in tongues recorded. So. And it is vital that that is the gift they demonstrate. Because when Peter has to go back and they are, and when he gets back, we meet a group called the circumcision. And the circumcision were a group we read that were Pharisees who had believed. So they were in essence guys that had been trained to believe that Gentiles, if you were not Jewish, you were going to go to hell and that's just all there is to it. A pretty radical mindset to see that all of a sudden a Gentile got saved or even more so a batch of them. And so Peter has to defend himself. Imagine having to defend yourself because you've preached the gospel to someone and they said yes to Jesus. Well, let that never be said here. I don't care who it is you shared Jesus with and they said yes. All I would say is praise the Lord. Well, nonetheless, so now the group is saying, you know, Gentiles can't be saved, so they have to have a showdown. And that's chapter 11 of Acts. There are two showdowns, 11 and 15 of the book of Acts. In 11, the issue is, can a Gentile even be saved? And their answer ultimately is, well, because they demonstrated the same gift that we did in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit fell upon us, well, then clearly they can be saved. There's no doubt. So, unfortunately for the circumcision, they were defeated. Then we get to chapter 15 and they're like, they're trying their second uh, approach. Their second approach is, well, Maybe we can bend it by saying this. Gentiles have to become proselytes. Proselyte is the closest a Gentile could ever become to a Jew. So they were circumcised. They had to keep the laws of Moses. In other words, they kind of had to, they were never going to be Jew by blood. That's clear. But they were kind of iffy on a technicality, if you will, because they were going to do everything Jewish as much as they could. And so what the, uh, the circumcision was trying to do again was, well, okay, if they... If Gentiles can be saved, technically they need to become as close to a Jew as they can first. Well, unfortunately, that becomes the problem here in this text. Is that they're following Paul around because Paul is a ministry to the Gentiles. And what they're telling the Gentiles is, well, you can be saved. And I know you've said yes to Paul's message. But now, here's what you really signed up for. You need to get circumcised. Now, please hear me in this. Because... We can initially think, well, how does in the world does this pertain to me? Because circumcision said, circumcision brought you into our club. 
That was the issue. Now you're part of our club, you have to keep our rules and standards. Not just biblical rules and standards, but our culture. Today we have a similar situation, not in all cases, but in some. And the issue in the right is baptism. Now, there is a big difference between an outspoken declaration of your salvation in water and being baptized into a church. And there are some churches that teach you are not saved unless you are baptized into their church. So when you talk to certain groups, and there are groups, by the way, here in Greenwich, there are groups that are almost across the street from us in, in Camden that will tell you, yeah, you were baptized, but you weren't baptized in our church. And they'll say, well, you can call yourself a believer, but are you a disciple? And they play these word games, and you get so confused after a while, you don't even know what in the world. You're like, I, you know, I thought I was saved until, yes, until this guy came up to me. And it is amazing how they play these games with you. And it's like, you need to be baptized into our church. But when you get baptized into their church, you are now, in essence, consigning yourself to their culture and their traditions and their standards, and it becomes the same thing. So note that. Now, with that in mind, of course, and he'll, Paul, as we know, will address this in several different letters about this group because they're really a problem. So let me say this. In regards to Galatians, there is the area of circumcision versus uncircumcision. The verses of the gospel and the law are going to be your comparisons in this book. And they are second only in, excuse me, all of those books. They are, I'm sorry, all of those words, they are second only to the book of Romans, except for the word uncircumcision, where they're equal. The only different thing is, is that Romans is two and a half times the size of Galatians. So he really packs in the issue of the gospel, 11 times, by the way, the issue of the law, 22 times in this, and the issue of circumcision versus uncircumcision. And let me just say this, if we could wrap the book up into two statements, it would be these two statements from chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. And then Galatians six fifteen, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a new creation. In the end of it all, what really matters is who you are and what you do. And he goes, let me tell you, in the end of it all, this is what really matters. Who you are is a new creation. Either you're a new creation or you're not. What you do, work your faith by loving that, because if you do those two things, I don't think God's going to, if you pardon me for saying, I don't think God's going to ask you to drop trout to prove that you belong to him. Now, for the Jews, it was an issue. Here's the ironic thing. If you actually study, and I know this is a very uncomfortable subject to share in a mixed group, but if you, if you do a word study on things like the word circumcision throughout Scripture, what you'll find is more times than the physical circumcision that is spoken of is the circumcision of another part of the body, and that is the heart. And one was supposed to, be, in essence, be iconic of the other. What God really wanted was that the most sensitive part of you, which is your heart, was to be cut open for God, to, to be exposed to God. That was the idea. And if another part of your body is exposed, but that part isn't, it is an injustice to what God intended in the first place. So, with that in mind, the way that the book runs then is that Paul shows that mankind and man's rules and man's standards and man's traditions could never be the way to salvation, could never be the way to be set apart in sanctification, could never be the way to service. It will never be. But I want to warn you. The whole point, again, is, is it a gift 
or is it a wage? Is it, if it's a gift, I didn't do anything to receive it, and God initiated. If it's a wage, I have to do something, and God responds. So who does it, and who responds? Salvation, God did it, I responded. Sanctification, God does it, I respond. In regards to service, that's the hardest one. But it's still the same. God still does it, and I respond. The hard part is that is so foreign to Christian culture. Because usually what you do is you go and you try to find a place that you're comfortable with its traditions, comfortable with its, with its liturgies and rituals, and then you kind of go and you ask the guy in charge, what am I supposed to do? And of course the hard part is, is that as a pastor who wants to be a facilitator more than an administrator, is I would ask, well, what has God told you? Which requires an entirely different level for you. It requires you to listen to him more than me. Which, by the way, I highly recommend. So, like always, don't just believe me. Consider Scripture. And consider everything in light of Scripture. Now, with that in mind, the two most emotional books that Paul writes, if you will, are going to be Second Corinthians and Galatians, but with very different emotions. Paul is really, really hurt. And, if you will, really, really offended by, in Second Corinthians. Like, who do you think you are, Paul? And again, a place where he had spent the second most amount of time of any church. But here, Paul is mad. I mean, Paul is mad. And nowhere does, God, does Paul give more intense language than he does in this book. And if you find language where you're like, whoa, chances are it's Galatians. Like, let them go to hell. Let them go to hell. Let them just cut themselves off. That's, that's how serious Paul is about it. And be, now, that's not the voice of a person who's just getting a little cheeky. That's the voice of somebody who's angry. So that's a cool hint for us in regards to it. So, notice how he starts the book off. And again, I'm, I'm going through what I've given you guys and covering a couple very important points in it. Galatians 1.1, Paul says, listen to the defensiveness of this, if you will. Paul, the defending God doing it versus man. Paul, an apostle, not for man, through men, through men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, we raised him from the dead. To the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Notice churches, because again, it's a region. Does that make sense? Notice he's like, look at, I'm an apostle, not from men, nor through men. Now, how would you become an apostle from men? How would that? How could men? make you an apostle, or how could men ordain you as one? From men means that it was man's, that the reason Paul became an apostle was because of men. Through men means that it was a process for which men were responsible to make Paul an apostle. Do you know what that's called today? Seminary. Now, I'm not here to bag on all education, of course. The Bible tells us to study and show yourself approved. A workman who need not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. However, if you think you're going to go into something like that because it's a factory to pump out pastors or people with a calling, well, you don't get your calling in something like that. You get equipped at best. The whole point is, is God's the one who gives you your calling. And so when people say, well, you know, when you start asking, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, when I finally fell in love with the Lord, I opened his word and I really got excited about who he really was. I started looking at every seminary, because that's all I knew, in Southern California. And as I did, I would ask them questions as they were asking me questions. I'd invent stories to see how they would respond. And what I wanted to see was somebody use the word of God. 
And I would ask dangerous questions like, let me ask you, how many of the people, where do the people go after they graduate from your program? Well, most of them become pastors. Of those people who become pastors, I keep hearing these weird statistics. How many of them remain in the pastorate after two years? It was amazing how quiet things get. Do you know that in the average, 75% of the men who are ordained as a pastor in a seminary, 75% of them cease to call themselves a pastor or to serve in the ministry within two years. That's as long as they last at best. 75, three quarters. Now, I'm not telling you that all seminaries are cemeteries, but I am saying this. You can't, your calling will not come from a man and your calling will not come through a man. Your calling comes from Jesus Christ, God's son. I can't tell you what you're going to be, but I can encourage you in it. I would rather be your cheerleader. And the way I'd say it is, I'd rather get in your boat and row than just jump in your ship and steer. Now, for what it's worth. So, notice in verse 6, 1-6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now, and he'll say, though, it's not really a, you know, which is not another. It's not really a gospel at all. Gospel, I remind you, means good news. There's no good news in this. But there are some who trouble you who want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remind you, gospel is going to be an important word in this text. Notice, you're swapping out more than just one gospel for another. What are you leaving behind to go to this new gospel, according to this verse? Look what it says. I marvel that you were turning away so soon from what? Grace. Ooh, even more so than grace. Notice what it says in verse 6. I marvel that you were turning away so soon from him. him. There's the scary part. Though we will see falling from grace will be our text in here in a bit. When you leave the gospel of Jesus Christ, you leave more than just an ideal. You leave him. Because when you swap grace for works, you're trading in Jesus. Jesus is the whole idiom of grace. He's the one for why, through whom all grace came. So then I look, no, I'd rather earn it. You're, you're bailing on Jesus to do this. And Paul looks and he goes, if you abandon Jesus and make him a secondary character, how in the world can I trust that you guys are actually saved? And I imagine Paul is flabbergasted because he planted the church and because he went and followed up with them. Like, what the hell is going on? So in verse 8 when he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now don't miss that. So, do all angels tell the truth? No. So what if someone says, an angel told me, and there's a whole new gospel. What would Paul say to that? Let that angel go to hell. That's what he would say. Actually, that's what he has said. Do you realize that that's the whole story of Joseph Smith? The Book of Mormon. That an angel called Moroni told him that the Bible has been so mistranslated throughout the years that he needed to get the real Bible. And apparently, according to his testimony, the Book of Mormon, which is a collection of fantastical stories, 
which is not remotely near any scripture. He said it's actually the Bible. And then he said that in, then the testimony is that a voice came from heaven. And by the way, he, they came on plates. He, and he, after being rested for stone telling, and I don't know if you know what that is, that's putting rocks in a hat and then telling someone's fortune, which again, by the way was against the law during the days of Joseph Smith. And uh, the first time he was arrested and posted bail. Second time he posted what's called leg bail, which means he just fled town. Well, then after all of this happens, where what happens is these plates fall from this guy, and he doesn't know how to read them, so he gets the urn and the tumim, which, by the way, we won't, it's, it's, a, it's the, the stones that would sit in the, the high priest's breastplate. And he says, somehow these stones fell from this guy. They came into a hat, and he would be able to look in the hat, and he didn't just translate word for word. He translated character for character, according to the story. Then a voice came from heaven and said, this is the perfect translation. Anyone who changes one character in it will be eternally damned. Well, there's a problem. Joseph Smith himself made over 500 corrections in the next handful of years. Now, put those two things together. Now, here's the whole point of it. Is that what they would say, imagine this guy who's already been known for telling telltales come in and tell you, an angel told me that does not validate anything according to Paul. Paul's like, even if an angel were to give you another gospel than this one, let him go to hell. And matter of fact, Paul's like, did you get that? Just in case you didn't, look at the next verse. As we have said before, so now we say again. As we've said before means, this isn't the first time you've heard me say this, guys. Now I say it again, if anyone preaches to you any other gospel to you than what you've received, let him be accursed. Not just an angel, I don't care who it is. That tells me how serious this is to Paul. So he says, in verse 11, I make known to you, brethren, then, that the gospel that I preached by me is not according to man. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it from men's the idea, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul then begins to give us his testimony. And the whole theme again is, man didn't give it, man didn't instruct it, so it wasn't from man or through man. He didn't give it, nor was it taught, so that's the from or through. He goes, but instead, I encountered Jesus personally. And then he gives this amazing account, of course, of his, of his encounter with Jesus Christ. But in that, would you do this? Who else has their Bible ready? Anna, would you please read verses, let's do 16 and, let's actually, if you would, do 13 through 17 of chapter 1. Yes, ma'am. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous than the tra um, traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately conquer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Okay, now, if you read the book of Acts, one of those things in there is missing. Paul says, and again, remember his whole point is, it really isn't about men here, guys. You knew how I was <clears throat> trained by men, raised up by men, commissioned by men, and I was trying to destroy Christianity, but... I encountered Jesus. And when I met Jesus, you know the first thing I did was not go talk to men about it. 
hear me on this. The first thing I did was not go and sit and try to get other people's opinion on it. It was the first place I went. I went to Arabia. Arabia? Why don't we read about that in the book of Acts? Because the book of Acts is what people do. So what did Paul do there? He may have spent as much as three years there in Arabia. Well, what happens when you realize most of your whole life is a lie? What you had been taught. One of the terms we use, and I pray you would adapt it as well, is the term Arabia time. What happens with that is that you take, if Jesus really is alive and real, and he is, how is that to affect every area of my life? How does that affect the way I view myself? How does that affect what I know as truth? Because Paul was convinced he was dead. Meeting him alive clearly proves otherwise. How does that affect my understanding of the law? How does that affect my doctrine? How does that affect my priorities? How does that, how does that affect my dreams? My plans? My hopes? How does that affect the way that I view romance? Or marriage? Or love? I really believe why... Most of us do stupid things after being a Christian that we used to do before we were saved. It's because we haven't had proper Arabia time in that in that area. Where we get alone, and I am all I can picture is Paul being alone in Arabia, going, Alright, God, Jesus is real, he is alive. Let's start rebuilding this from the ground up. Because you realize it's like well, I viewed myself as an athlete or as a musician, as an artist. How does that look now, God? This is what romance or the absence of it would look like. How does that look now? Now that you're to be the Lord of my life. How does religion look now? How does church look now? That you're alive and I'm aware of it. And you're to be the Lord of my life. How do I view the people that I choose to hang out with and influence me? If you are alive, and you are, and I'm aware of it, and you're to be the Lord of my life. How do I view what legacy I'll leave behind? If you are alive, and you are, and I'm aware of it, and you're to be the Lord of my life. We need more Arabia time. But something else hit me this time around reading. Paul has mentioned Arabia twice in this book. I don't think I ever really put the two together. The other time is in chapter 4, I believe. And in chapter 4, Paul is comparing two covenants. The covenant of the Ten Commandments, if you will, and the covenant of the promise of Abraham, the covenant of faith. And he compares it, by the way, to two, if you will, to two children of Abraham. One was a child of a slave girl named Hagar. We know him as Ishmael. The other one was the son of promise, which is Isaac. 
She goes, in one case, you have a child who was born free, and another one was still kind of born a slave. And he goes, you know, the problem is the one who was born a slave persecuted the one that was free and of promise. He goes, you should expect the circumcision to do the same, because they're the child of the other. And then he says, they're like two mountains. One mountain is Jerusalem, where, by the way, God has set his promise. It's a place of freedom. But do you know where the other mountain is? Mount Sinai, where they got the Ten Commandments. He says, which is in Arabia. And I wonder, I wonder, I just wonder, if Paul, after getting this information, meeting Jesus and seeing him alive, and seeing that Jesus isn't just going to kill him and blast him out of space, but rather having a call in his life, if Paul doesn't actually go to the place where the Ten Commandments were, I go, have I been looking at this all wrong my whole life? Where if I did this, then you would respond? When really the whole line of it is, you already did, did so much and you wanted them to respond by behaving and, and obeying? Because you delivered them out of Egypt by a promise, not by them earning it. And then you wanted them to respond with obedience. I just wonder if that's where in Arabia. I don't know. But it does. it's interesting that they're both listed here. But let me ask you. Because though we want to make... I mean, we don't want this just to be an intellectual pursuit here, do we? And I'm still a pastor. I'm not just a teacher. And so I want a shepherd. And part of the desire to shepherd is to shepherd you to Jesus, of course. Is there, what areas of your life? Are there any that really need decent Arabia time? You know, I remember just going, all right, I'm going to get in the word and I'm not going to ask other people's opinion first. I was sitting with a really decent gentleman a couple days ago. I told him how I first fell into Calvary. And I'm like, I had already come to all my conclusions as far as doctrine and scripture because I was just alone with the Lord and I was convinced this is the way he was showing it to me. And then I just basically fell into a group of people that was like, oh my goodness, you believe the same thing I do. Is it really that? I guess maybe it isn't that weird, or maybe it is, I don't know. But I'm sure glad to be around other people who are as weird as I am in that. And it was just, it was such a cool, organic thing. And the reason I say that is, is that, that there was this Arabia time that I really needed. And I still do it, to be honest. There have been several times, to be honest, where I've gotten away for a day or two uh, in one manner or another because what I've really needed is to go, all right, Lord, am I, am I doing this right still? I don't want to just go, well, this is the way we've done it. It must be right. Well, is it right? Well, chapter 2 then. He says, then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately among those of reputation, lest by any means I had run or I might run or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now, the second visit to Jerusalem, by the way, happens that we're seeing here now is going to be the showdown we saw in 15. This happened because false brethren secretly brought in who came by stealth to spy out the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. Don't, or Christ Jesus. Don't miss this. They saw a freedom that bothered them. Now, now we're going to see where that freedom goes in the last of our three sections. But these guys who were part of the, of the circumcision, they were part of a, if you will, they were a legalist group. Does that make sense? That's what they were. This is the way the legalists work. 
Our convictions are universal and you are not even saved unless you're part of what we think. And he goes, they saw freedom, they didn't like it. So they, then they wanted to bring us into bondage. To whom we did not yield submission for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whether they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. Uh, for those who seem to be something, added nothing to me. But on the contrary, they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel of the circumcised was to Peter. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship of the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Now, the whole point is quite simple. Paul had a showdown, and what they agreed was, you know what, Paul, you're doing it right. boy, Keep it up. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, and this is the rest of chapter 2, what we find is the same guy that was then the apostle to the circumcised, to the Jew, also had a weakness in this area, and he did what I would call a high school lunchroom experience, where you're sitting with a group of people that were maybe a little more nerdy or something, then the cool kids walk in and you leave your table to go and sit with them. That's kind of what he did. Peter came to Antioch. I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So this group had such influence that even Peter, this great man of faith now, crumbled because... They're like, oh, you're eating with Gentiles. I can't believe you're eating with Gentiles. And Peter's like, yeah, you're right. What am I doing? And when I saw that they were not straightforward about the gospel, Peter wasn't, I said to Peter in front of them all, hey, you, being a Jew, live in a matter of Gentiles, and you don't even live like a Jew anymore, Peter. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? You don't. So Paul's like, I didn't have a problem rebuking Peter, the Pope. Uh, in front of everyone. So, in the first two chapters, fundamentally what Paul is making really clear is that these, this group, this circumcision group, is very influential, and they're obviously the cool kids on campus in one way or another. And there are certain ways to play that. You're either the tough group, or you're the smart group, or you're just the beautiful group. Well, in church, tough doesn't really work, beautiful doesn't necessarily work, so smart's the only one you can still play as a card. So, you know, if you're, you know, oh, wait a minute, you're not a Calvinist, but you're clearly stupid then. Because we are clearly the smart ones because we figured it all out. Well, you are smart. Matter of fact, you're smarter than Paul. Because Paul says, you know, his ways are beyond figuring out. Paul's like, I can't figure it out. It's a good thing. It's a shame that you weren't there around Paul's day because clearly you would have told him, I figured it out, Paul. Well, anyways, the whole point of it is it's amazing how there's groups like that. And he'll say like, they want to exclude you that you'd be zealous for them. He's like, they're like, oh, we're the cool kids and we don't really want you. And now you're like, oh, well, I, now I want to be with them. And they play into our insecurities. Don't fall for it. Because if you do, then may God raise up someone like a Paul at a moment like that. They go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the way it plays out and you know it. So the first two chapters, you don't get saved by works. It's grace. You didn't earn it. Chapters 3 and 4. What Paul did in Romans to instruct and inform them, he does here to remind and rebuke them. Uh, the language is quite similar in some of this text to Romans. That's the hard part, and that's why I'm separating the tests. Doing Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians as one test. And then doing the following letters in another so that you'd be like, well, and it's even going to get worse when we get to Colossians because Colossians, in essence, is sort of a summary of the previous three books. But it's the reason I say that is the, these, these, this language would probably sound really familiar if you're familiar with the book of Romans that we've gone through. 
Except for this, chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Could you imagine people who have great respect for someone like Paul saying that? You, you, you numbskulls! Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified? Oh, this I only want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, did you earn it or was it by grace? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit that you are now trying to be made perfect by the flesh? Now, interesting here, notice what that means. When I think of the flesh, my natural inclination is to think of people running off into sort of devious sin. Hugo, you don't have to blow your nose that loud in front of everyone. Um, you know, you're like, oh, you're in the flesh. And to be honest, what we're going to see is that is the fruit of it. But to be in the flesh, according to this, what does it mean? Well, according to this, it's actually putting the law in it, trying to earn. The idea of being in the flesh here, and to be honest, my name just put it this way, it is self-reliance versus God-reliance. And he goes, you know, you're trying to complete in the flesh, in your self-reliance, what God did by grace in the Spirit in the first place. See who supplies the Spirit to you? Notice that was the whole point here. Now, God supplies the Spirit for what? For sanctification now. Setting you apart. And he goes, and does all these miracles to do by the works of the law? I mean, did you, did you earn any of that? He goes, let me warn you of this. As many who are under the law, well, you're bound under a curse then. Because he tells us then in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who does not continue doing all the things that are written in the book of this law to do it. He goes, hey, you have to do them all or you're cursed. He goes, but that no one is justified in the sight of the law, by the law in the sight of God, it's evident. And he quotes from Habakkuk 2.4. And I want to remind you of this because this is key. I remind you, Habakkuk 2.4 is actually quoted three times in this book. The just shall live by faith. The just, elaborated in Romans 1.17, shall live, that's here. How do we live? By faith in the Spirit, not by works in the flesh. And then finally, by faith, Hebrews 10.38. Well, then what was the purpose of the law? Well, it was a tutor to lead us to Christ. Pedagogos. Pedagogos is the person that was your personal instructor until you got to the place where you were ready now. They were kind of, if you will, kind of a tutoring nanny that prepared you then for the time when you were ultimately ready to go and serve under your father. And he goes, the idea of it is there's a, the, the law has a specific shelf life with an expiration date. Because there's a certain day where sooner or later you realize you're going to be following by example in a relationship and not just simply by learning the ideals. So, that we'd be justified by faith. Now that you're known by God, or rather known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements by which you desire to be again to be in bondage? Oh, my little children, in whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to present, I'd like to be present with you now and change my tone, because I have doubts about you. Now, this is the second letter where Paul really wanted to change his attitude. What was the other letter Paul really wanted to change his attitude about the people he was writing to? Second Corinthians. If you remember when Paul's like, you know, I could come hardcore on you, but I'd rather not. 
I'd rather come in gentleness and meekness. But hey, if you really want to sort of draw lines and kind of create a battle line here, I'll come hard on you if you want me to. But that's not my desire. I'd really love to come gentle. Please let me come gentle. Here, Paul's like, you know, I'd love to change my tone on you guys. But I really, I have doubts. I am not confident in you. And that's a scary thought. Tell me you desire to be under the law. Don't you hear what the law says? And that's where he then starts to quote about the two mountains and the two children, the one of Hagar and the one of Sarah. And his point, of course, is this. Is that Paul knows, look, at, you can't be saved by the works, by your works and having God respond. And you can't be sanctified. Now you have choices to make, but your choices are in allowance of God's movement already. God says, I want to set you apart by my Holy Spirit, and I want to kill that sin in you and that desire of sin. Will you let me do it? Not, i got to really, really do this so that God can approve of me. He already approved of you. He died for you on the cross. So you can't be saved nor sanctified by the flesh. Which takes us to our last section. In our last section, he tells us this in chapters 5 and 6. That your service as well can't be a work of man. It can't be from man nor through man. And we already saw that. So this is what he says. Stand fast, therefore, by the liberty in the liberty in which Christ has made us free. Remember that liberty? Where was that liberty mentioned before this point? Does anyone remember? What's that? Oh. Yeah, when, well, and actually in this letter, remember how there was a group that saw their liberty, their freedom, and they wanted to go and bring them back into bondage instead? They were offended by that, li- by that freedom? Well, here's that freedom, and listen what it says. Stand fast in the liberty in which Christ has made you free. Don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. I say again, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law, which tells us circumcision was then an initiation into keeping the law. You guys with me on this? Are you following me? Have I killed you yet? No one? Okay. I'm assuming your silence means no. No. Okay, thank you. 5-4. You become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Have you ever heard anyone use that expression? When they use the expression, someone's fallen from grace, what does it usually refer to? Like some high-profile preacher somewhere who had this big TV ministry and did all this other stuff, who next thing you know gets caught with a male prostitute and a bag of coke. And, oh yeah, we've seen it all. And uh, they say, oh, he's fallen from grace. But to be honest, that's not fallen from grace. That's just backsliding into sin. According to this verse, and just read it, and you tell me, what does it mean to fall from grace, according to 5.4. Becoming estranged from Christ. Sure, that's the product of it. And how do you become estranged from Christ? Trying to be righteous by law. Excellent, exactly. Falling from grace, it's not just falling from intimacy or falling from fellowship. Falling from grace means the thing that you're farther away from now is grace. Because you fell from grace. So therefore you're farther from grace. How can you be farther from grace than this? We're trying to get right with God through the law. There is going to be one more book, by the way, written 
with this same problem. Do you know what the book is in the New Testament? The letter? The epistle? Hebrews. By the way, it's the other one with very severe language. By the way, as well. So, Christ Jesus is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. That's really not the issue. The issue in regards to what you do is exercise your trust in God by loving people. And I challenge you, by the way, if you're a student of the Word and you want to jump into something like this, I love rabbit trails like this. Look at how Paul thanks, how thankful he is for churches when he writes about them. And how he looks for two things. Well, he looks really for one. He looks for their faith displayed in the love that they have for one another. Prove me wrong. Take a look for yourself. When Paul is confident in their faith, not because someone had just said, some way we've heard a rumor about your guys' faith, but where he's like, your faith and the love for one another abounds. And you realize he's like, true trust in God causes you to do something you would never do before. Now, love is not warm, fuzzy, give me a hug. We can still do that. That's nice. But the love is a selfless commitment to other people, which is something the unsaved world would never do. So we're going to look really crazy doing it, as far as they're concerned. But that's, after all, though, we're not trying to uh, get applause from them. We're trying to influence them into Christ. And to be honest, the strangeness that we're so busy trying to avoid actually creates a novelty that intrigues them so they actually want to know more. We're actually def- we're shooting ourselves in the foot to chase them by doing it. Now, 5.11. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision... By the way, is the cherry pie still cooking? No. Oh, okay, cool. Thank you. Sorry, I don't know how that caught into my head at the moment, but the man's got to prioritize. All right. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer? Per- why do I su- if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? That's not really easy to say. Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Oh, I wish those who trouble you would just cut themselves off. I don't think I have to develop that. I think you know what that means. Now, for you, brethren, you've been called to liberty. Remember that liberty? Where else was liberty mentioned in this book so far? Romans. Besides the book of Romans, where was it in this book? The liberty, the freedom. What's that? Verse 4. Go ahead and read it. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. That they might... That they might bring us into bondage. That's been the problem the whole time. It's this circumcision group saw their freedom, they were offended by it, and wanted to pull them back into this whole legalism trip. That's been the problem. Now, this is fundamental, guys, because we're almost done here, so please, don't let me lose you. 5.13 tells us why you've been set free. What you've been set free to do. You've been called to liberty. But don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, do what? serve one another no you're not free to sin you're free to serve here's the problem when we think of freedom I have freedom I have freedom to do this I have freedom to do whatever ask yourself this question whom am I serving 
by exercising this freedom. Because I think it becomes pretty stark. Hey, I'm free to get wasted. I'm free to sleep around with whoever I want. Those are sins, by the way. We're clear in Scripture. But who are you serving to do that? What Paul says is God has set you free so you can serve other people. Because you were so consumed with yourself before, you didn't have the freedom to serve anyone else. You were too busy serving yourself. Ironically, now you're saved. You want to go back to serving yourself? Don't you think that's a little strange? Because the crazy part is you've been set free to do something you couldn't do before. Set free to go back to do the thing you did before sounds really silly. Why, after he opens the jail cell, do you actually, the door, why do you want to just go back in and kind of put yourself on that nasty cot one more day? I mean, the whole point of it is you've been set free to actually go and be a blessing to other people. How amazing is it that you could be a blessing to people? Because you really couldn't be the kind of blessing you could be now before. When you're serving yourself, it really isn't about being a blessing to other people. And it is amazing when people are like, you know, come on, we've got freedom. I'm like, yes, we've got freedom to serve. And it sounds like I'm being such a stickler and a, and a like a party pooper. I'm the party pooper. Because it's like, you know, oh, come on, you know, we just want to go. On. And I'm not here to say, look, you can't go see a movie. Like, I do those things too. But in the end of it all, it's like when I'm busy trying to explain myself to someone, am I, because I have the freedom to do this. It is amazing how often I'm trying to make allotments to serve myself. You know what the funny part is? You know who really wants to serve me is the Lord. And the crazy part is I'm getting in his way to try to serve me when he would rather do it. Who would I rather serve me, me or him? What a crazy thought. And yet it's, you know, and the reason I say that is as we grow. And here's the hard part. We're in a book about legalism. And I'm here actually trying to challenge us to take the high road. Can we take the high road without being legalists? Do you know what I mean? I mean, is there a place where we're like, you know, what I really want to do is serve other people? When we're like, well, you know, Paul was offering to all men. And that's the end of the verse? No, that he might win some. Well, what's he doing to win them? He's serving them. He's serving them by giving them the gospel. He's serving them by investing the word in them. He's serving them by coming alongside them and showing them what it means to, to walk with Jesus. He's becoming more like Christ in front of them so they can see that. But it's not like people are like, usually when you, you know when somebody throws that trip at you, what they're saying is, I want, to go back to go and be, I want to go back to being more like the world now, now that I'm saved. How much of the world can I get infected by and still somehow not die? When he says, you know, imagine if this verse infected us like that did. Where it's like, you know, you have been set free so you can be a blessing and a world changer now. Man, then be it. Because look, in the law, all is fulfilled in this. You really want to see how the law fulfilled? Love your neighbor as yourself. Not love yourself, and if you've got any left over, love your neighbor. Because that's what the world's going to teach you. That is not scripture. That's the world's Bible. And the world's Bible is not God's Bible. That's just, you can't love anyone else till you love yourself. And, and I get what they're trying to say in this. If you don't really feel good about yourself, how are you going to really serve other people? But how do you not feel good about yourself when you realize Jesus died for you? If God saw every nasty thing about you and still wanted you anyways, and you're that loved, then exactly who are we trying to get, you know, kind of get a some form of appraisal from. So because I am so loved by God, I don't need anyone else's approval so I can serve you the way that I that God would want me to serve you. And you can serve others the way that God is wanting you to serve them because you already have all the approval you need from Him. 
And he goes, you know, you want to, see, you really want to do the law, do it all in this. Just love people, commit to being selfless and serve them, like you're so committed to serving yourself. Well, therefore, the rest of the chapter then is how to walk in that. Walk in the spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Wait a minute, the lust of the flesh. Lust, epithemia, it means the fury that's placed upon it. And then he compares two things, and don't miss this, because now we're, we're, we're at kind of our last points. I remind you up to this point, the whole flesh thing is about self-reliance, not just about running into sin. Because what he tells us is the works of the flesh are these things. And he lists a whole batch of them, sexual sins, contentious sins, competitive sins, anger and emotional sins, you know, sins of the mind, they're all right there. But he calls them the works, the products, the effective actions of the flesh, which tells us the flesh in that thing can't be the same because it's the product of the flesh. Well, what's the flesh? The self-reliance focus on me. That's what the flesh is. And if the self-reliant focus on me is where it starts, he calls it the works of the flesh. So read that, would you? Let's see. Who else? Who's got their Bible handy? Sati, you're right there. Would you please read chapter 5, verse 19 through 21? The flesh uh, of your sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, adultery, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fit of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, um, faction, and envy, dunk, drunkenness, um, orgies, and delights. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so let me ask you, is it the work of the flesh there or the works, singular or plural? Plural, excellent. It's the works of the flesh. Now look at 522. The fruit of the Spirit. And, okay, no, go ahead, go ahead, give it to us. 21, or 22 and 23. Okay, um, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearing, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self and self-control against such thing there is no law you know there's a part of our mind that doesn't compute because it's a list of things and we read fruit and we're like isn't that fruits I mean it's a lot of things right well clearly there must be more to it than just the fact that something doesn't add up that it's love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control how is that a single fruit? Because he already knows how to handle plural because he did it with the works thing, right? Well, there's the point. Here, get the idea of this. This flesh was going to bear forth action. Spring-loaded and it's going to spring into action somehow. And there is a list of things here. And they're in the plural. So what that means is that self-reliant, self-focused mindset could manifest in any of a plurality of or any combination of those things. Does that make sense? Like, for instance, here's the problem. You talk to somebody, for instance, who was a mass murderer. A couple of guys come to mind, I think, of in America, who weren't watching or feeding themselves on violent information. But they were completely ensnared in pornography. Not even violent pornography, but pornography nonetheless. Pornography was feeding a very selfish mindset inside of them, a self-reliant, 
a self-centered mindset. That was what fed the flesh. And when it erupted, it didn't erupt with sexual sin. It erupted with violent sin because it's one of the things on that list. So the problem is, it's the same thing, by the way, we're talking about getting hit by lightning. You're probably aware of the fact where you get hit by lightning, by the way, isn't the problem. It's where it exits. It's going to come in somewhere, but where it leaves, it blasts a hole. So the same in regards to the works of the flesh. Where it enters isn't as big of an issue as where it exits. But you wouldn't want it to enter at all because there's no place, for instance, lightning is going to exit that it's going to be a pleasant experience if you live through it. So here's the problem. What feeds your flesh may be different than what feeds mine. I know some people I can't even play sports with because they get crazy. I know other people, by the way, you can't play card games with because they get that way. I know some people you can't watch a type of movie because it really does feed their flesh. I know some people you put them in certain environments and they are so focused on themselves, it just it's it, ultimately it's going to bear forth something. So so Paul puts it as a plurality because I want you to recognize you may be feeding your flesh in some area and then thinking you're getting away with it because you're not living it out in that same area, but it may be manifesting another way because here's the plurality of the options that the flesh will manifest when you feed it. And there's the danger. Now, let's say Daniel's, Daniel's allergic to peanuts. Daniel being allergic to peanuts, we may not know right away, but there are many different ways where peanut allergy can manifest. Though, more than likely, Daniel will have ingested peanuts. More than likely, he's not just rubbing around, rubbing himself with peanuts or, for whatever reason, putting peanut shells in his hair because he thinks that's really cool. Or he's exfoliating his chest with the shells uh, that I'm aware of, Daniel. And if I'm giving away a secret, forgive me. But, but in that, it may manifest by his throat swelling. It may manifest by a massive sweat. It may manifest by him losing his sight temporarily. It may manifest by him passing out. It may manifest by him being really, really itchy. But they're all coming from the same source, but they have different places they can manifest. Does that make sense? And in the same way, when we feed our flesh, it can manifest in any one of those areas. In other words, these are the symptoms of a person in the flesh. But, here's the good news. The fruit of the Spirit is one. And what that means is, when I'm walking in the Spirit, I would expect all of those things to manifest. Because they're all one fruit. Does that make sense? Now, if they were like the fruits of the Spirit, would that mean as well? Maybe when I, as I'm walking in the Spirit, I'll get more love. But all of them should manifest. There's the beauty in it. More love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. They all manifest as I'm walking in the Spirit because as I'm receiving from God, those things start to manifest. There's the beauty. He goes, but I want to warn you, the two of them are at war with each other. Neither one of them is willing to share with the other. Both are about total domination. God isn't in a time sharing with you about your, with your flesh. And the flesh has no interest in sharing with God. So one of them is going to have to be put out. And maybe you've heard that the, the, the battle of the flesh and the spirit is like the battle of two dogs fighting. The one that wins is the one you feed. And the other one that starves is the one that loses. And that's exactly what happens in the rest of our text. Look it. It says... Then, verse 8 of chapter 6, that should be chapter 6, by the way, he who sows to the flesh will also reap to the flesh. What are you doing? You're feeding it. 
But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And that's, by the way, the context to let us not grow weary and while doing good. For in due season we will reap. It's so easy often when you start sowing to the flesh to see it manifest. You know, it's like you start focusing on yourself and the next thing you know, you become a jerk in whatever way you, your jerk looks. And he goes, man, you don't want that. He goes, but often when you're feeding the spirit, you know, when you're seeking, like right now, I'm assuming, I am, I'm seeking to be fed spiritually. Because when that happens, he says that you may not see it right away, but I don't want you to grow weary in that. But I'd rather is that you not grow weary because you are going to reap. So you keep sowing. What's interesting is I remind you, Paul sowed to this. Paul sowed in the churches in Galatia came from it, and then Paul watered, and the churches of the Galatia were part of it. Now Paul looks and he's almost like he feels like he has to weed the thing and start over. Remember, the way he says it is he's actually laboring in childbirth with these guys one more time. And, and that's kind of a funny metaphor for me to think. Paul's like, you were my baby. And now I feel like I'm giving birth to you one more time. It's a very strange thing to think with Paul. First of all, now look at it. It says, now as many as desire to give a good showing in the flesh, they would compel you to be circumcised. Because to be honest, they really just don't want to suffer persecution for the cross. And somehow the Jews aren't going to persecute you if somehow you can actually do this, do this Moses and law thing first. But even those, ironically, who, keep, who are circumcised keep the law, they desire you to be circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh. One thing is they don't want to get hammered for it. And the other thing is they want to brag and say, and by the way, I'll warn you, I actually, one, this, there was this particular cult, by the way, near Camden where, where our church is, the one that was really reaching out to a lot of the people in our fellowship. And I watched uh, one of the messages by, uh, by the pastor that is there. And his whole thing was on how many people they had converted. The funny part about it was, well, it's actually not funny at all, is that none of them were lost before they got to him. He talked about people who were already Christians or perhaps were Christians they, were, they called themselves believers. They were going to another church. But because he got a hold of them, he's baptized them into his church and he's made them his disciples and everyone stood up and applauded. And he would give numbers of the amount of people this week that he had done that with. Next week I watched the next one, same thing. I watched it for four weeks in a row. And I only watched, after the first one, I only watched the first five minutes and it was more than I can handle and the reason I say that is, look at this again. It says, for those who be circumcised that keep the law, who desire you to be so, they desire this so that they can actually boast in your flesh. They can be like, check out how many people I circumcised this week. And I'll be honest with you, a guy, you know, it's quite an accomplishment if you think you got a bunch of guys that go under the law by circumcising them. Anyways. Um, finally, he says, look, in the end of it all, this whole thing really isn't about... You being part of someone's club, it's about being a new creation and a man cannot make you a new creation. A church can't make you a new creation. A tradition can't make you a new creation. A denomination can't make you a new, religion, a new creation. Only a creator can make you a new creation. And none of us are creators. Not like God. We can't. Now, 
in the end of it all, you have this choice tonight and I have this choice tonight. If Jesus is real and he is and he's revealed himself to us and he deserves to be the Lord of our lives, is there any area we need to lay out Arabia time? And maybe you need to get that and get that time. Get away and say, man, am I, am I really submitting this area to the Lordship of Jesus? Or am I telling him, this is kind of the way I've made up my mind about it. I'm just asking you to bend on this area. That's heavy. Then am I trying, now that I have accepted the grace of God in salvation, in their second part, am I trying to think that now I have to earn the rest of it? Or am I actually in faith receiving these things? Now, that doesn't mean I don't have to make choices and that doesn't mean I don't put any effort in. But everything I do is a response to him. Not so that he will respond to me. That's the point. And then finally in our last area, since the, remember, service also cannot be a work of man. It has to be a response to God. And notice he says, you've been set free. Who did that? God did. And therefore, make this choice. Don't use that as an opportunity for sin. But through love, serve one another. Service is a response to his saving and setting me free. And if that's the case, I want to warn you, either you're going to make it about you or you're going to receive from him. But if you make it about you, it's going to manifest in a whole chalk of ugly ways as he showed us here. But on the other side, if you receive from him and your eyes are on him and your heart's on him, well, then he's going to manifest all the things he promised for the single fruit of his, of his spirit. So you sow to one or you sow to the other. Tonight you have sowed to the Spirit with me. And I expect God to manifest in you for that. But do yourself a favor when you go home tonight. Don't dig it up and try to plant other nasty things beside it. That would seem silly. Are there any questions on our text? Before we pray. Ephesians. It is the commercial capital of Asia Minor. Uh, it is, if you were to look on a map, it is the west corner, or the west mid, high mid corner of, uh, I'd say that with the, the west end of Turkey. Almost dead center in there. It's the largest artificial harbor, and the biggest of ships could actually find a porting there. And because of that, it was a huge thing, because it connected then the landmass of the Middle East with the waterways of Europe. And that was huge because, and that was one of the reasons why even the uh, roads from the Euphrates, the main road, the travel road from Euphrates would wind up and it would, it would end at Ephesus because in essence, it was then the customs hub for everything that was going from Europe then into the Middle East. That is fundamental. It is important to know that because it'll help us understand a couple things. For instance, when something would show up then in Ephesus, they had to check to see who owned it. The way that they could see who owned it was that a person would take their signet seal. You wore your signet ring uh, either around your neck uh, as an amulet or you wore it on your, as a ring. And then what would happen is you'd take hot wax and you'd drip the hot wax and you'd stick that seal in there. And that said, I own this thing. You was sealed for the day that you redeemed it then. All you had to do then was show your signet. And you're like, clearly that belongs to me. I was the one who sealed it. That is fundamental 
Because it tells us in Ephesians, and you can see how Paul's drawn from that experience, when he says, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's the idea, the gospel of your salvation when you believe. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. They all understood that there in Ephesus. So it was because it was a huge commercial place, uh, because it was a commercial hub, it was obviously a place where they understood the idea that you belong to God and he sealed you with this Holy Spirit that he's not going to take away. Uh, and it tells us in Ephesians 4.30, not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Important to note, by the way, God never calls the Holy Spirit an it. He is a he. He can be grieved. Important to note that for a couple of reasons. One is that means he has emotions. The second is you can't grieve someone that doesn't care about you. You can irritate them, you can bother them, you can anger them, but you can only grieve someone that loves you. And it tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. I think that says an awful lot. Well, uh, because it was such a commercial hub, it was also the place, and it was the farther, the most west of the Middle East, it was the place where cultures met. Europe met there with the Middle East, and it became extremely diverse. Now, you're probably aware of the fact when a place is more known for its diversity than it is for its, pre, than its uh, predominant inhabitants, what happens is it becomes known for its tolerance. The same thing, of course, here in London. You know what the official food of London is, though? like the official dish of London? Curry. Oh, isn't that interesting? Because obviously curry would not be the most traditional English dish. Now, Imagine you might find that as well in places like Manchester. But as far as London is concerned, it's the official dish. Because, to be honest, when look at our church. When we look around the room, there's not a single old school Brit in this room. There's Britain. <laughs> there's a Brimacan, you know, a Jamitan. But, I mean, as far as the most, you know, the classic sort of stereotypical Brit, we don't have one in this room right now, but we have a lot of other cultures represented. And, and by the way, I'm thankful for both, by the way. And, and Daniel, I love you regardless of who you are. You know. And all of that to say this, that because it was such a diverse place, they, were, they met for two primary reasons there. One of them, of course, was because it was a cultural hub. Well, you know what I'm sorry, one, because it was a commercial hub. And you know what happens when you have a commercial hub? You have jobs. A lot of people to work in the docks, a lot of people to be able to work through customs. There's a lot of people that can get jobs there. And that's probably the way one of the reasons people come to London. You're aware of that. They just can't afford to live here. So what happens is they live like six hours away and they take a train every morning at two in the morning to come to, to work. And then they go home to places that aren't in London, like Croydon. Yeah, whatever. Anyways, so, um, so, boy, boy, Dan, I'm sorry. Uh, so there is, but there, the things that were uh, identifiably Ephesian are what become, what makes this book so serious. Uh, first of all, uh, the one thing that cast a shadow on the entire city was this giant edifice in the middle that was the temple of the goddess of pleasure, Diana or Artemis, Diana the Greek, Artemis, the uh, Roman I mean, basically, you're probably aware that the Romans didn't invent any gods. They just basically slapped a new name on them. Anyways, the, um, the foundation of this particular temple was a story high. Everybody of the foundation, they had columns that were all six, over six stories tall. 
over a six-story building, the columns, and there were 127 of those columns, by the way, that were six-story high. Uh, it covered nearly 100,000 square feet of property. Uh, and because of that, there was, and pardon me for saying, I, I just want to be, I, it's probably better I just crassly walk right through it quickly, but basically sex was king. I know that's probably not a surprise in a community like this, but because every, you know, by the way, even in, and you know this, in, in Italy and in other places, it's like every town has like a guardian saint, you know, and it's, you know, it's like, have you ever seen the one in Sicily? I mean, it's like this crazy chick with three legs coming out of her head in three different ways. So she's like a wheel that spins around until she vomits. But it's like, a, it's a weird character. And you go to Nepal, even, which obviously is not Italy. And there's like this blue face gal that they're like, she's the object of beauty. And I'm like, blue ain't doing it for me. But again, I don't try to insult another culture. The whole point is, is that they still, they say, well, this town's looked over by this person. Well, Ephesus was looked over by the queen who basically was like multi-breasted. She just basically looked like a raspberry, if you'll pardon me for saying. She was just, and there, I don't know, some people thought that was pretty. Again, it doesn't work for me. But because of that, when you showed up at the gate, it was, you were greeted by prostitutes. They were temporary workers. They were called, by the way, those of the welcome house. In other words, the welcoming committee were those that were there saying, and it was the weird part. It wasn't just like, hey, let's go have sex. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to be crass. It's just coming naturally at the moment because the information is. It was a religious service. And you went there with this concept in mind. Now, what they taught, and it's important, and the only reason I'm sharing with you is because it pertains to our text, is that, that there was a place in the heavenlies where the gods dwell. A place that was a supernatural place that the Greeks, of course, always talked about it as being wisdom, and the Romans kind of developed, even though they had the Greek gods that apparently also dwelt in that stratosphere. But there was a place up there somewhere. And then the Romans gave these guys names as well, and then here we are. There's this place up there, and it's a place of utter pleasure. You know, whether you want to call it paradise or whatever. And there's this earth. How did the two connect? What the uh, the issue was the union of the earthly world to the supernatural world of pleasure. Does that make sense? You can guess what they said, what the act was that did that. Because that's why they were temple prostitutes. They were saying that that physical act of union was a connecting of the heavenly places to the things of earth. Now, that's a crazy idea. But nonetheless, Paul therefore uses the term heavenly places throughout this book. And what I want you to do, and it's going to be so important, is for you, as you see on this, to write down every time you see, just write down what does it say about the heavenly places in the times that Paul mentions it. You, you're more than likely most familiar with the last of them, where he tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but he tells us that our, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, powers and mights and dominions in the heavenly places. Interestingly enough, there was a battle taking place in that heavenly place. But if you read everything about the heavenly place up to that point, you'll see what that battle really looks like. Because we know from that, he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. That's the point of it. Why do you put on the full armor of God? Because there's a battle to be fought and you want to make sure you're properly equipped for the battle. But you want to make sure you see every place and you know what it says about that. Does that make sense? Now, 
the mystery cult. That was the mystery cult of Diana was the idea. I remind you, the mystery was the union of this place with earth. And again, what they were saying is that the amazing union of heaven and earth took place through sex. Paul uses the term mystery, and by the way, it's mysterious, it's mysterium in the Greek, so it's the same word. He uses that word, and he pulls from that concept, and he shows you what the real amazing mystery is, and it is also a mystery of union. It's just not the union, obviously, of sex. Something else unites heaven and earth. Does anyone want to guess what that is? I'm not even say it this way. Does anyone want to guess who that is? Yes, exactly. He is the mystery is actually not Jesus. He's the one that unites. But what he says is it actually unites two groups of people. You want to guess what two groups of people get united? Let me give you a hint. You would get through it from the book of Galatians and Romans. What's that? What two groups of people are sort of highlighted? Excellent. The Jew and the Gentile. And he says he himself... He, Jesus, is our peace, having broken down the middle wall of separation, having made the two one. And he'll talk about that. So there is a union. And that union, by the way, is caused by Christ. Anyway, so that's, so you can see how he plays off of those two things for what it's worth. Now, the book is really simple in that sense, by the way. And I put some couple things in here just to kind of help you get a little bit. To you, right, by the way, and I've been to Ephesus a handful of times. Um, there is this, the Celsius Library, there's the outer shell of it, the facade of it. It's actually ridiculously large. It, the library, consider this. 2,000 years ago, there was a library that had 25,000 seats. Now, 25,000 people could sit there and read, to give you an idea. And, that, and um, an amazing thought. And it had, by the way, more seats than volumes, because there were, I think, as many as 20,000 to 25,000 volumes. Uh, in other words, things that could be read. Uh, also, it had the largest theater. There's known, by the way. Now, I want to remind you, there's a theater, an amphitheater, and a, a what's called a hippodrome. Hippos means horse. A hippodrome is usually the largest because it's a, people would actually sit and the horses would race around them. If you've seen things like Ben-Hur, you've kind of seen what that looks like. Now, let me ask you, what's the most famous one in Rome? The Colosseum. The Colosseum, is it a theater, is it an amphitheater, or is it a hippodrome? Does anyone know what amphi means? Amphi means around. Peri and amphi are two different things. They're both meaning around. Peri means around from the outside, like a perimeter. Amphi means around from the inside, like an amphitheater. You sit and you see it all the way around. So, is the Colosseum an amphitheater, a theater, or a hippodrome? Well, first of all, did they race horses there? No. So we can remove that. Do you know what the Colosseum originally did? What what sporting event took place in there? Gladiators? Before that. <coughs> Olympics? Oh, even before that. Let me warn you, it involved water. I'm looking at the Italian in the room who's purposely not looking at me. <laughs> they had ship fights. Two ships would be in there and like like Pirates of the Caribbean stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then from that ultimately would become the chariots over the because it became more and more bloody and that lust for it took the Italians. 
Sorry, I took the Romans down. Um, anyways, with all of that said, but it is therefore an amphitheater because it is all the way around. People saw from all the way around. A theater, on the other hand, has a single focus in front of you and everything that conically goes around it. Does that make sense? And it doesn't become an amphitheater until it goes all the way around. We might say like a theater in the round where the stage can be seen from all the sides. Wembley Stadium. What would Wembley Stadium be? Excellent, an amphitheater. What would um, the Dominion be? A theater, yeah. It's a theater where we will rock you as an elf and all those other things like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to think of things that are actually here. What would the roundhouse be? Theater. It's hard to say, to be honest. It was actually built to be an amphitheater, but they, normally they section off half of it. How about the O2? Same thing. It's built to be an amphitheater, but it's traditionally, for the most part, a theater. In other words, it has one particular location and everyone's in the same place, on the same side of it. Does that make sense? The largest... So now, how many people, for instance, does the Wembley Stadium hold? Does anyone know? 68. Okay, so that was actually... That was impressive. I think you're probably right. I think it's between forty and 60,000. I think that's about right. reason I say that is, imagine if you had to cut it in half so that all the people had to be on one side to look in the same direction... The theater in Ephesus hold twenty-five to 50,000 people. That's a big theater. That tells you a lot about how important this particular place was. Now, uh, it is the most addressed letter, or sorry, it's most addressed location, because Paul writes, obviously, to Ephesians, uh, as we know here. But we also know First Timothy, Paul will actually tell him, I left you in Ephesus, so I'm writing to you there. And we know that in Revelation, one of the seven uh, churches is the church of... Ephesus. Now, it's important to note, by the way, after the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, that meant that the apostles had to flee Jerusalem as well. Tradition says that John, the apostle, the one whom Jesus loved that wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, that he wound up in Ephesus with Mary, Jesus' mother. Which becomes really interesting because if you go to visit the tourist sites, they lived in three locations and died in two of them. You know, in other words, there's a lot of different places that say, no, this is where he lived. No, this is where he lived. Anyways, uh, with all of that said, ultimately, though, John would, you're probably where would be deported to Patmos and he would, he would come back. But he was the bishop of Asia Minor. That's that whole western region that starts in Ephesus and does sort of this oval thing that, by the way, are all of those seven churches that you read of in Revelation. John, in essence, was the bishop or the overseer of those churches. So when Jesus gives him that letter, you understand he actually was responsible for the churches. He was None of those churches were a stranger to him, for what's worth. Okay, uh, Paul's relationship to them, by the way, he, uh, in his second journey, he really just does a kind of quick pop by because he's trying to make his way to, the, uh, to Pentecost in Jerusalem, but he did leave Priscilla and Aquila there uh, in his place. That's where they encountered Apollos. Remember that whole story? But in his third journey, now we're roughly 55 AD. He spends three and a half years there. Uh, and that tells us, by the way, that there is no church that he spends more time at than this one. There is no place that Paul spends more time than this place. In matter of fact, it's interesting, until a riot takes place. And you know where they drag uh, the people at the riot? Into the theater. Same place today, by the way. 
God willing, we'll go on one of these trips. I'll take you through there and we'll walk and we'll see the theater. It's breathtaking in, in, uh, in Ephesus. It's interesting because Paul would tell the Corinthians, you know, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus and I wonder if what he was talking about was that riot. Anyways, there are different people who ministered there, Onesimus and so forth, but Paul ultimately on his way to his arrest to Jerusalem will stop and he, and he, doesn't, he doesn't want to go to Ephesus because you know he would stay too long and he pulls the elders, the leaders of the church, 30 miles south to a town called Miletus. And in Miletus he sits down and he says, I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come, not sparing the flock. He goes, I know once I leave, there are people already poised to try to devour this fellowship. So don't you forget for a moment what I taught you. Remember what I taught you and hold on to those things. Never forget it. And if you will, it's kind of like a dying man's wishes, if you will. Interesting, because apparently they took that very seriously. But there is a problem when you just focus on trying to be right. And that's the problem Jesus has when he tells him in, in Revelation, if you will, 40 years later. And he says, oh, you actually have the right thing. You can sniff out a phony. You can totally tell all of that. He goes, but you left your first love. He goes, you're so busy about being right, you left me to do it. He goes, how right can that be? So there's a, there's a danger in that we want to keep in mind. Timothy is sent there and told to remain. Tychicus is sent there. And, of course, uh, Jesus, of course, challenges him to it. Now, this is what I challenge you to do. Here's your homework. Please do it. And, by the way, it's for your sake, not mine. I'll be honest. I've already done this homework. And I can say, it's awesome. <laughs> and if you don't do it, you're losing out. It's kind of like it's a benefit pie for you to sink your teeth in, and it's up to you whether you want to eat it. All right. You want to write down every place it addresses the heavenly places about what it means. Like what, that's, what, it, what you learn about the heavenly places from that verse. By the way, the first one alone, if you remember the, the last one's about the battle, should really blast you in. And then the second one, you're like, oh, dude, this is so cool. And then you go through in regards to the mystery. Anything that it speaks about the mystery, record those things. And then let me tell you how the book plays out. It's very simple. Two sections. The first section, the first three chapters, what God has done for you. Remember how that was with Galatians? You're, you're, it's your response, but God has to do it first. God does it, you respond. That's this book. First three chapters, what God does. The last three chapters, how you respond. And by the way, let me say it this way. Your response will be walk, and if you can't walk, stand. But before that, this is what God has done for you. So do this in the first three chapters then. And that what this will mean, warning, is you may have to read through this book a few times. Awesome. This is scripture we're talking about. God wants to show you his love in it. D dive in and feast. So my suggestion is read through it once in regards to the heavenly places. Read through it again in regards to the mystery. Read through the first three chapters about, and then write down everything God has done for you. Then go through the last three chapters and talk about how we're to respond to that. What should we do there for as a result of it? I might say what God wants to do through you, but really it's how we respond to that, just like we learned in Galatians. Does that make sense? What you'll find by the time you're done is, wow, 4 through 6, strangely enough, comes after 1 through 3. Huh. Because I can't do 4 through 6 without first letting God do 1 through 3. Isn't that beautiful? All right. Any questions on... 
Ephesians. Beautiful. Well, I want to pray. And we're solid.